Hello listeners, and welcome to the Detail's new podcast called Michael Jackson Unspun. Jackson was admitted the biggest selling album of all time. Michael Jackson has become the first artist in the history of music to generate six number one singles off one album. Michael Jackson! Michael Jackson! But I must confess it feels good to be thought of as a person, not as a personality. So welcome to this episode of the Details Podcast, Michael Jackson Unspun. I'm again Matt, here as the video creator behind YouTube's Detail, and also your host for this series. Uh, But I'm also here with another Michael Jackson YouTuber, MJ Fangirl. How's it going? Good, Matt. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Just put up like a little uh, post on the community on YouTube to ask a few questions because today's topic is going to be about Michael Jackson. Well, I've called it kind of like the business of Michael Jackson and his kind of endorsements and his finances. And I think it was really like groundbreaking as a business person within the music industry and, and not just as an artist. Um, yeah, and we got some, I agree. Yeah, and we definitely got some uh, really interesting questions, which we <laughs> had to try and stop ourselves from delving into <laughs> too much before the actual podcast begins. So this was a topic that you suggested, actually, because I've done a couple videos about uh, Pepsi, uh, his Pepsi contracts, also the fire itself that happened and the ramifications of that. Also his endorsements with like LA Gear, and there's other ones I want to do as well. But I find this like a really interesting thing about Michael Jackson because I think, I think it, yeah, again, like I said, it was really revolutionary for him at the time to kind of expand himself away from just music and performing and actually seeing him as a commercial entity in itself that can right. be used as a, as a vehicle to sell, as a corporate entity in itself which I don't think any artist really did that before. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, It's interesting because I just started reading this book. Well, I'm reading it for the second time, but this time I'm actually really diving into it. It's called Michael Jackson, Inc. And Ah. it was written, yeah, it was written a few years ago, basically going into Michael Jackson and the business of Michael Jackson from the beginning, from the Jackson 5 era all the way after he passed away and like what the estate has been doing for the first few years. Um, and I thought it was when, interesting. When did this book come out? Do you mind me asking? It came out in 2014. Like they cover all the way up until MJ One and MJ Immortal, like the two Cirque du Soleil shows, mm. and kind of like I don't know if it was like music. They just basically began to promote him a lot again after he died to try to like recoup the money because it said that Michael Jackson was at um in the negative yeah. in terms of like cash flow and stuff when he died. So I've been reading that. Mm. And one of the quotes that I found that was so interesting was about how Michael Jackson, he, you know, he had that whole thing about study the greats become greater, mm-hmm. but he also took the time out to study people who had a- attained success, but not done well on the business front. And he wanted to be like the opposite of that. Mm. Um, So, yeah, it says from Matt Forger, who was his engineer who worked with him from, I believe, Captain EO all the way through the latter of his career. It says he studied people who had attained success in their field, but he also studied people who, although they were successful in the popular sense, they may have not been successful in a business sense. And he studied those people and the mistakes they made so that he would not make those same mistakes. So, like, I feel like those are some of the motivations he had um, in trying to, like, get his own masters and buy like the the Beatles catalog, mm. the Sony catalog, ATV catalog and so much. Yeah, I mean, who do you think were in that category? Because I always, because I was thinking like, who are his business influences? And one that kind of comes to mind is someone like Walt Disney, you know, someone who kind of encompasses a lot of creative avenues, you know, had physical theme parks as well as TV and, and, and film, you know, his creativity kind of extended all those different avenues and lives beyond him. Yeah, so did they name any that, that he was inspired by? Um, in the book, I don't remember, I don't recall that they named exact names of anyone. Um, mm. I do recall that they talked about the fact that he was inspired by a lot of the business mistakes that his father um, mm. 
his father made. I mean, first of all, I'd like to say I think Joe Jackson did a pretty good job in like negotiating some of their deals, especially mm. when they went from Motown to Epic. They actually began to get royalties that they weren't getting at all during Motown. But it's just like mm. in terms of like the publishing and stuff, Michael Jackson wanted to make a change after that. I guess you have to think like, because I also think like a lot of the people that Michael Jackson associated himself with were older artists. I, I'm just thinking like, you know, he really admired like James Brown and he, you know, was friendly with Fred Astaire and um, yeah, Sammy Davis Jr. and um, Liza Minnelli. I mean, she wasn't really that much older than him at that time. Barbara Streisand. So you know, I, I feel like he, he you know, he, I, I see him more as an artist that looked up to people and want to associate with himself with people that, you know, are more established than him. Obviously, Paul McCartney being one as well, um, rather than like his contemporaries. I think he really gravitated to the ones that kind of came before him. And some of them did really great in terms of business and, and, and kind of excelling their success in that way. And some of them um, hadn't so much. And one quote that I recently put in my video um, on racism and Michael Jackson was from James Brown, who was pretty much just saying that, you know, show business is both the show and the business. And often black artists weren't part of the business side of things. They were the performers, but they were kind of left out of everything else. And yeah. I think particularly in the like 50s, 60s, you know, into the 70s, there was a lot of artists that made a lot of money, had huge hits, but at the end of it, they didn't have anything to show for it. And that a lot of these contracts were kind of made in a way that kind of was, you know, obviously benefited the uh, recording labels than the artists. And Michael Jackson was very much like aware. of. Yeah, definitely. Um, I know that it said that Michael Jackson was aware from a young age that there's two revenue streams that basically come from a song, which is the master recording and the publishing rights. And that mm. usually the record labels own the masters. And I think that he was definitely a trailblazer in trying to get his masters because a lot of people don't know. And I didn't even know that at first he didn't even have a lot of the masters like um, his lawyer, which is now the co-executor of the estate, John Branca, his lawyer at the mm. time had to like go through different find different loopholes to get publishing like hit their own publishing. So, for example, um, shake your body down to the ground and some of those like songs that the Jacksons did at Epic John Branca was able to like go and get some of those songs and find loopholes in the contracts and basically bring them over to start Michael Jackson's own publishing company oh. or his own company basically which was is his M my Jack music mm, um, yeah which is all of his songs now basically and that that's still yeah owned by the estate unlike his sony atv catalog well and i think that's really interesting in the respect that like you know how michael jackson always had this like love hate relationship with performing <laughs> and that you know obviously the bad tour was meant to be his last tour he would always say he would never tour again and i guess like to have a real focus on the publishing to make sure that you own those songs that you get those royalties from those songs that you um elongate the longevity of that music is really gonna give you a more sustainable career in the long run or just a revenue stream essentially so because uh, i think he really saw it as like you know i spent my whole childhood going out and performing and constantly being told you know you need to do this because you're going to get x amount of money and constantly feeling like you're trying to catch up to yourself in order to um you know right. to keep going and that he just wanted to be okay and have enough and to perform you know at his own wish and, and not feel like he had to right exactly and i think that that might have like that comfortability and having like the um how do i say it not cash flow but assets in the sony mm. adv catalog and also his own catalog almost gave him the comfortability to say like i'm not going to tour anymore i don't want to do this Whereas in reality, he still mm. needed that cash flow. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into more of that later. Yeah, exactly. And I think, and I guess it's kind of respect of like doing things that you think is right for your career versus I have to do this in order to pay whatever back to the record label or I'm being forced into doing this because I need, you know, because we're in the red on this or whatever. Like, I, you know, I, I think there was, you know, so it allowed him not to do... 
I don't know, as much promotion where he would be on TV shows and being interviewed all the time. Right. But what I thought was also <laughs> really interesting with that is that obviously, you know, Thriller, uh, you know, biggest selling album of all time, but also he had like the highest uh, royalty fee uh, during in, in the music industry at the time, which I thought was really interesting that, amazing that he had that right at his peak. Like it wasn't like, because normally people have a huge success and then the next contract is going to be really beneficial to them. But he had that just when he was uh, hit his major success um, with Thriller. Right, yeah. I mean, I I read in the book, Michael Jackson, Inc., that uh, he actually, re- they renegotiated his deal in terms of like his royalties for Thriller three times during that period of time. Oh, really? Yeah. And it was funny because uh, Walter Yetnikoff, who was the head of Sony at the time, mm-hmm. he kind of like didn't believe that Thriller was going to do as well as it did. And like mm-hmm. Michael started, you know, he was pushing for certain things. Like he was pushing for um, even like the Thriller video, uh, which Sony didn't want to fund. They didn't want to give the money for because he'd already had two big videos and they were like, okay, Thriller's big enough. Like, this isn't enough, you know? And Michael was like, no, and he kind of fought against it. And Walter Yetnikoff was like, oh, man, Michael's going to be mad at me. I don't know how to make this up to him. And that's when his lawyer was able to be like, give him his masters. And that's when that whole thing started. Uh. Michael was able to get his own music. So that's really interesting. So actually, people underestimating him and what he was able to do really benefited in the end, you know. So if they thought, wow, we've got a hot commodity here, he's just come off a really big solo album, we're going to have to try and cash in on as much as we can on this. So so they might have thought, oh, I had this huge album, like, you know, with Off The Wall and that... Uh, the album after, you know, it'll probably do well, it might not do as well, you know, who knows. Um, So they probably didn't, I mean, who could have anticipated that it was going to be as big other than Michael Jackson? that yeah he really rode that wave and really was able it was really able to benefit him um hugely because of those like people who kind of underestimated him and i think even with like the beat it video he had to pay for it himself i think it was about hundred and fifty thousand dollars and he just was like well I'm, I'm gonna do what i'm gonna do and also with the, with the thriller video that was funded through the vhs release of making of the video as well um yes so kind of getting around different avenues in order to make things happen for him. Right, definitely. And I think that it was interesting because Michael Jackson, I think he had a lot more confidence in himself than I, like you said, a lot of people did around him. Not that they didn't have the confidence, but I think Michael was doing things that had never really been done before. And um, like even when it comes to the success of his albums i remember uh reading that some of his team was like hey okay after i don't know if it was after thriller or after bad where they were like hey why don't you just release a greatest hit so you don't have to like compete against yourself i think it was after thriller yeah. and michael like looked at them like they had two heads and they were he was like no <laughs> you know he always wanted to push the bar yeah and even after bad they were i mean this is in my whole um michael jackson and the la gear video but they were planning to do a greatest hits uh album for him that could sort of encompass because michael jackson was obviously named uh by vanity fair as the artist of the decade so they thought well let's do something that i think the album was going to be called something like the decade or or yeah, a decade or something like that. Yeah. But it was going to be a greatest hits album of all his hits in the eighties, and then they were just going to put on a couple songs at the bottom. Really, <laughs> um, I'm glad they but, didn't yeah. do that because I'm like, I'm like, not a fan of having the greatest hits. Like later in his career, there mm. were so many that released. Yeah, I'm glad that Michael just kept pushing along and releasing new material. We got enough greatest hits at the end. Yeah, <laughs> well, I think I I guess for him maybe that was a. I don't know, it seems really intimidating, right? New album, what's your direction? You know, oh my God, like maybe starting off just doing a couple songs and thinking, well, it's just gonna be on the greatest hits. Then he's like, okay, yeah, I can start that. And then once he gets into it, it's like, oh no, I'm really feeling this. Or like, wait, this this gotta have to be like a whole new album, you know? Right. I, I, I kind of touch upon it in my bad video because I think that transition from Thriller into bad is really significant to him from a business standpoint. And I think he's always felt like this in his career that he was, 
you know, and it kind it, it, it's kind of messed up as well, but I think he very much saw himself as a commercial entity, his own personal life and how he presented himself, and that he tried to reflect the culture or what people wanted from him. So you have so you have to think as a child star, people didn't really want him to grow up. He want they wanted him to be cute, they wanted him to be naive and innocent, yeah. and he in some way kind of tried to maintain that. Um, throughout his career and then even with the things like um, um, him not having a girlfriend or having uh, inter- you know sexual interests and stuff in, in, in women in the early part of his career that was always something which record labels to- told him you know you've got to be available you you know we have to keep the female fans happy and that you know you're attainable to them um, and I think that was very much happened in Bad where every single song was orchestrated in a way of like this shows Michael Jackson as the street kid, you know, that he's just like anyone else from the ghetto or whatever. And this is him pursuing a woman, so he's like the pursuer of women. And then this is him as the... Um, leave me alone, like saying, hey, F you to the media. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that also plays into um, parts of his like fandom around like wanting to protect him and f- making him feel like vulnerable, but also lashing out. Um, obviously Man in the Mirror that was you know him as a humanitarian and him uh, his more uh, socially and worldly conscious songs so everything had a part to play and I felt like that kind of worked in um you know, that worked for his businesses as well. You know, he wanted to appeal to all different types of people. He didn't want to seem as, um, you know, just black or or anything else. Or um, he doesn't yeah. want to be seen as just male or female or gay or straight. It was this very kind of cross crossover in all respects, not just rock, pop and R&B, but like in every avenue of him. So he could have the widest appeal. And that's actually one of the criticisms that on quite a lot of his albums is that they say there's always that one or two songs that are a bit uh, middle of the road or a bit, you know, kind of uh, diluted (laughs) genre (laughs) music where he kind of tried to accommodate everything within that. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. And I think that part of that, like, I guess, ambiguity in his public persona made him... Uh, someone that everyone could look up to and everyone could relate to in some aspect because you're like, well, I don't really know exactly where he stands or what he is in this respect, but he kind of reminds me of myself. Like, you know, I think everyone can find a little bit of themselves in Michael Jackson at some point throughout his career, and I think that's why he attracts so many people, young and old. So, yeah. and he, I think he capitalized that's on true. that. Um, but it was also interesting because I wanted to bring up the fact of how much he admired P.T. Barnum, um, which was okay. the circus, uh, you know, the I don't want to say the guy in, in charge of creating the circus because I'm sure he was so much more, but that's how I know him as. Yeah. And um, he actually, I think he took a lot of his like the way that he interacted with like the media and yet he used that to propel his businesses. Like, so for example, the whole thing about like no, no publicity is bad publicity. So like promoting the elephant man's bone story and trying to Mm. um, get people to believe he slept in the hyperbaric chamber. Like uh, supposedly those are stories that were leaked on purpose by Michael Jackson and his team to the media in order to like kind of keep his name in the, in the forefront. Well, the, the funny thing about the oxygen chamber is that 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 came out at the time when he was trying to promote Captain EO. Um, so I kind of related it, I think in the video that I did for the, the fire during the Pepsi commercial, that he saw that that became such a huge success because of all the um, press that was around him during that time and that the, you know, endorsement was really successful and that, um, you know, that was a really uh, popular venture for him, um, that he thought, well, let's try and grab the, you know, just putting out the product itself is not necessarily going to grab those headlines, but let's try and put something out there that kind of relates to it, um, that will also grab those headlines and make sure that right, I get enough right. publicity to make this, you know, a, a great success for me. One other thing that I thought was so interesting was that, so Michael Jackson 
so around since you mentioned Captain EO, I'm just like so into this book, by the way, you guys. If you do get a chance to read it, definitely read it. Um, it's pretty factual, although I will say that since it is approved by the estate, like you will get a lot of um like it's I don't wanna say it's like pro estate, but it is like showing the story of John Branca and like what his role was during Michael Jackson's life as his like main lawyer. Um, so, and also it talks about Frank DeLay on a lot of the people that like Michael Jackson was like working with and then not, and then working mm. with and then not. Um, but anyway, so keep that in mind if you ever do read it. But speaking of Captain EO, it was interesting because Michael Jackson used something called like stonewalling mm. when he didn't get what he wanted. Like he would like, so a lot of the artists back in the day, I don't know if James Brown did it. But I guess some of those types of black artists would do this or any artist would do this where um, he would be backstage and be like not go on stage or something like that until like he would they were paid like the, the performance fee in cash like before the thing happened. Well, Aretha and, Franklin has a couple uh, stories like this where she would perform with her purse like between her legs or something because she <laughs> she wants to make sure that she got paid beforehand and she didn't have anywhere to put it so she used to just bring her bag on stage, do the performance and then leave. <laughs> oh my gosh! I had no yeah. idea. I love that. Well, yeah. like supp <laughs> supposedly Michael did it. It says here um, on page 118 before many of his concerts, Jackson insisted on personally accepting his share of the box office revenues in his dressing room before taking the stage. Um, so basically, like it says, so a lot of people would go on stage and like never get their fee. So I guess he learned from oh artists before him to do that. And I think a yeah. lot of his like behaviors... <laughs> we're kind of like that in a business sense like he'd be like even i was watching your la gear video and like the fact that he didn't mm. really he was just like kind of like oh well i'm not gonna release the uh the greatest hits and i'm just gonna lay low oh well yeah. <laughs> and so la oh, well. gear's like i thought you were gonna promote this <laughs> it's like, well, this contract isn't conditional on the basis of, of of me, you know, putting out this album. If I do, I do. And maybe that was part of the negotiation. Maybe he was like, or, or his, you know, his people were saying, oh, yeah, he's going to put out this album. They didn't know whether he was or he wasn't, you know. Right. So they tried to, like, kind of, um, yeah, really kind of sweeten the deal with that. But it wasn't actually going to be the case. Um, but but w were these the performances on his tours, or was this like individual performances? Uh, and and do you know what period they were talking about? Um, it doesn't say. It just says before many of his concerts. So I am honestly not sure which this might be, but it could have been like the bad era. I'm assuming because <laughs> it doesn't say anything about like his brothers. So yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Like, I don't know. I can't imagine it, though. Like, I, I don't know how much Michael Jackson got paid per performance, but could you imagine if they just rock up with, like, seven <laughs> suitcases full of cash? Just like, <laughs> here you go. Um, you know? <laughs> and he's, like, got it in a safe, like, just off stage so you can see it. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. Michael Jackson's just, like, the way he thinks about things is, like, so... Like, he has a lot of forethought into, like, the perception of him and how that will impact his business. So, like, for Captain EO, one of the things was that he didn't show up for the unveiling of Captain EO. They had this whole big Disney special yeah. and parade. I and saw it. I watched it on YouTube recently. They had, like, Angelica Houston there and all these, like, celebrities. And I thought Michael Jackson might turn up because I was looking for, like, just footage that I could use. I'm like, no, he's not there. <laughs> Yeah, he wasn't there. And supposedly he said, like, I don't want to be photographed with Pluto. Um, I'm going to be trying to do, like, co he was coming out with Bad Soon. So he wanted, like, a more mm. grown-up, adult, like, edgy um, edgy image. And he didn't want to mm. be photographed with, like, Mickey Mouse. And so that's why he decided, supposedly, not to go. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. And then also they said that he might have been dissatisfied with the final edit. Um, which is unfortunate because, like, I loved Captain EO and I would have loved to see Michael Jackson talk more about that. Um, but anyway, mm. again, part of, like, his business sense is just to remain mysterious and, like, let everyone kind of, like, do the work in the forefront 
when it comes to like the perception of things and then he'll handle the business side in the back <laughs> yeah well i think it almost looks better on him like that whole event it was like a huge parade at disneyland yeah and it was like this big thing and it was all about his star vehicle like film and that he wasn't even there so it kind of even makes him look more like a bigger deal that they would do that and he wasn't even there like because i thought wow this looks like a big deal yeah. they've got like you know obviously yeah like all the celebrity guests they're doing like a ribbon cutting thing they have like all the characters and the ceo of this and blah 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 and i thought michael jackson has to come out at some point um <laughs> but the fact that he didn't it kind of yeah makes him look even even bigger of a star um you know as a result Definitely. So, I mean, for you, what would you say are, like, the best business moves that he made through his career, if you had to kind of pin them down? Well, definitely, for me, I would say that I was pretty much blown away with the whole Thriller deal. So, like, going back to um, Thriller, Mm. the record label didn't want him to do any more videos because they'd already been successful with Billie Jean and Beat It, and... The way that he was able to get the money to fund Thriller, we you talked about this earlier, was to set up this deal um, with not only like the video company that was going to distribute the making of Thriller, but also with I believe it was Showtime. Uh, it was I think it was Showtime and HBO, where they basically negotiated to show the making of Thriller on on te- oh, excuse me Showtime and MTV. So they yeah, gave. Yeah, it was MTV. Yeah, Showtime and MTV. They gave three hundred thousand dollars a piece, and then mm-hmm. they also got from Restaurant Video, who was the exclusive video distributor partner. Um, they gave four hundred thousand for the home video. So that's how Michael Jackson raised the money for Thriller. And then the cool thing about it was, you know, he kind of changed the whole idea of like what a music video was and i think that home video went on to be like the highest selling home video of that time which is cool because it's like yeah sorry go ahead yeah so he made so he made a million dollars off that video but um because but to actually make the video was half a million was it or was it over a million dollars i think it was i think you're right i think to make it it was half a million yeah uh, so straight off the bat, he's made half a million dollars on that. Right. And then it also promotes... Because I know this was a time where... I'm actually doing a really interesting video at the moment, which I've spoken to you about, which is called... Um, it's going to be called, like, A Year in Review. In review mm-hmm. And it's going to be 1983. That's the first one I'm going to do. Uh, so I'm just chronologically, like, going through everything that happened in that year for him. And this was a period where he was really concerned about album sales. Obviously... He had very good album sales during 1983, but during the uh, tail end of the summer of 1983, he became really obsessive around looking every single week, how much it's selling, it's going down, it's going down. He was saying to, I think it was Frank DeLeo, um, what can we do? Like, how are we going to reinvigorate it? Because, you know, he he wanted to have this, you know, these huge records. Right. and yeah so so one of them was to create the uh the video for Brilla um and yeah and he had already paid for the video for Beat It uh because the record label said that they weren't going to pay for it um so he was trying to think of more because he had to outdo himself couldn't just do another not you know not uh, you know another thing that's similar to Beat It and Billie Jean he had to do something that was almost like a mini movie um so yeah so i think even that creativity not just in terms of like visuals or or kind of dance or performance but also just creativity in terms of a business sense of like manipulating or pivoting your own star power in order to get what you want i think that was like really ingenious of him yeah for sure like that period of time was so important i'm i can't wait to see that that video because i think as michael jackson fans sometimes like even earlier today, I was like, okay, in which order was everything? Or, like, in which yeah. order did stuff come out? <laughs> well, stuff that I found out, like, like in my Billie Jean video, um, one of the articles that I read was that MTV didn't play the video for Billie Jean until it was already a number one hit. But 
the video for the Billie Jean uh, song wasn't released until it was a number one hit. So it uh... looks so the way that you word it, it makes MTV sound bad, but they hadn't actually created a video yet. And I think people forget that at the time, a video was supplementary to a song. So, you know, obviously PYT and uh, Wanna Be Starting Something, The Girl Is Mine, none of those have videos. Uh, human nature um, <laughs> so it was kind of when a song was quite big and they wanted to kind of like really eke out the uh, perf- uh, the chart performance of that single then they would create a video to kind of like revitalize it so the videos often came out like you know a month or two after the single had been released mm-hmm. um, it was only during 1983 at least um, it was only Thriller that came out, was released, the video was released at the same time as the song. Oh, okay, okay. Interesting. I mean, no, I, I mean, he definitely, like, understood, yeah, the in, inner kind of networks or the inner workings of the music business and use it to his advantage. And I guess that's always kind of what you have when you almost have a second go at things. Like, Michael Jackson could have easily have been a child star that had great success, you know, during the early period of his career and not really have met that, you know, same level of success later on. And I think, like, having been brought up in the business and having first-hand experienced it the first time round, he, you know, by the time he was an adult, he had, like, the experience of, like, a 50-year-old, <laughs> you know, who's who's had, you know, um, huge successes in that business, you know, looking back on mm-hmm. hindsight and that he knew how to take advantage of that during that really successful period for him. And I also think, like, for him, his motivation was really, I think for him, like, the business was so important to him, the money and the financial side behind it was so important to him because I think for him that just gave him a validation as well as freedom and that particularly, you know, in the household that he was in and that, you know, the, the controlling nature of it and him wanting to do his own thing. Um, I think that was obviously incredibly important to him to make sure that, uh, that he, you know, that he, he didn't have to do anything because, you know, he needed the money for it, um, that he could kind of carve out his own way, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And I think he was, he had a lot of foresight into like how lucrative like copyrights would be like with the ATV, Sony ATV catalog. Um, Mm. I think a lot of people, like even the head of Sony at the time, uh, Yetnikov, told him like okay it's just not gonna be you, you don't need to do that or they didn't think that it would be profitable but then it ended up being like such a lucrative business deal um supposedly it was michael was making like over six million dollars a year just from like radio radio plays and physical sales um so mm. it's you know and that's another thing that i wanted to mention because like michael really wanted to hold on to that so much and i think there were different discussions about like sometimes him giving it up or not but he wanted to hold on to it to pass it along but then i what i heard was well as 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 some of you may know he the the michael jackson estate no longer has that sony atv catalog Hmm. and what i heard was that towards the end of his life there was something that was signed it was like some type of stipulation that sony records could like try to revisit it and get the entire catalog and for some reason that ended up slipping out of the uh the hands of the estate so mm. that kind of stinks because michael jackson really really prided himself on having that mm. and i think they had like great foresight into the future as well because you also have to think like this is 1985 he bought it or 86 yeah 85 um and you know music Older music in those days just didn't have the same longevity that it has now. Like, you know, obviously we're all kind of testament to this where old music is revitalized and that you get new fans and new fandoms and stuff. But back in those days, those were kind of like just old records or nostalgic songs that might be on a compilation somewhere. And to, you know, to think, hey, I could buy this catalog and then I could sell the rights to these songs or, you know, the permissions of these songs to be used in television advertising and films and, and then that could grow them as an artist and actually, like, 
create a whole new life out of these songs that makes it incredibly profitable that probably you know he had the foresight that he was able to do that when at that time that really wasn't wasn't really the case um you know music was kind of a young young person's game you know everything on the radio would have been kind of new and 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 that they didn't really have that kind of um you know like we do now that kind of nostalgia aspect of the business right right i totally agree and another thing that i found um interesting was that a lot of the songs that michael jackson later added to his ownership were songs that he thought of wanting to cover so like Hmm. some songs include uh, when a man loves a woman by Percy Sledge, Great Balls of Fire by Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh, really? Yeah, he like wanted to cover them, so um, that was like another motivation that he had for buying certain copyrights. Which I'm, I'm I wish that he had done those songs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you bought them. Yeah. <laughs> you think you would record them? Um, actually, the only person I can think who's really hellbent on this type of thing was Dolly Parton, because there's that famous story around her and um, I Will Always Love You that Elvis was going to record it, but then, and Elvis, you know, or his management said, uh, yeah, he's he's ready, he really wants to record this song, he's going to release it, I know it's going to be a huge hit, but... Uh, Elvis only records songs for music that he owns so you're you know in order to make because I I guess maybe at the time he thought look this is gonna be a huge hit you're gonna you're gonna you know make a lot of money out this is gonna put you out there as an artist as well like hand over the rights to this song uh, you know all the ownership of this song and then um, Elvis will record it but uh, the famous story is that Dolly Parton said, nope, I can't do that. To be fair, she already had two number one hits with that already. So it was one of her biggest assets in her catalogue. And she was like, I'm not getting rid of that. Sorry. Um, even though she absolutely loved Elvis and would have loved to have heard him sing it. But, um, you know, she, she kind of had that business sense as well. And obviously it's kind of interesting, actually, because she has Dollywood as well. I, I, you know, I, if Michael Jackson had the chance, he so would have had a theme park. And, yeah. you know, I wonder if they ever were like inspired by each other's careers anyway. <laughs> could be definitely and she was a crossover artist you know during that time as well the like late 70s early 80s trying to get into the pop uh um sort of markets and charts and stuff so that's that's actually a really interesting connection did films as well you know films television and uh and music um so i mean lastly to kind of round this up i mean where do you think, because obviously the late, latter part of his uh, career, things kind of went a little bit haywire in terms of business and finances. And I'm just interested to hear what your perspective is in terms of where did you see things going wrong or why do you think that might have been the case? Um, I have my own kind of ideas, but I'd be interested in hearing yours. Yeah, I mean, okay, so I've always thought that there was kind of a domino effect around the Invincible era because after so while Michael Jackson um, had the invincible you know he he never liked to tour but he kept doing it <laughs> and <laughs> for invincible I think the the record label wanted him to tour and Michael Jackson refused after 9/11 he could have had some safety concerns mm-hmm. you know the world was in a bit of turmoil he didn't want to tour even though he was gonna get a hundred million dollars for touring so he said no to that and i think in turn sony did not really promote invincible Mm. and when he wasn't really getting the promotion he really wasn't getting the money the cash flow from invincible i think that was a domino effect into everything else because he already had like neverland and different uh expenses there i i think it was like uh, 20 million dollars or something like that a year expenses yeah yeah to run it yeah so like he i think he was just trying to maintain and i don't think he was aware of like the fact that he needed the cash flow from touring and that's what i think led to you know kind of like him being in the red and I, I, I wonder with uh, Sony, like, the big reason why they spent so much money producing that album and doing all the promotion around it, you know, initially, was because they thought, look, the album is what we have to do, but the touring is where we make the money. And the fact that after he says, oh, no, 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 I'm not doing that, <laughs> they kind of went, yeah. well, okay, <laughs> we're not going to make any money out of this then, you know? Right. I think they had 
taken out a, a loan for $200 million or something. And What, Michael Jackson or Sony? Uh, Michael Jackson. Well, I think it was Michael Jackson. Let me actually... Yeah. Yeah. No, I did a video on this. I can't remember all the specifics, but pretty much... Pretty much the catalyst of all this, he was in the negative uh, since the allegations in 93. Um, and he was kept on borrowing money. And I think even with uh, the History album, there was so much pressure on him to make it as successful as possible that he did things like, um, obviously, the Ghost video, huge production on that, self-funded as well. That cost him $15 million, and he didn't really make any money out of that. Um, so kind of the rules and the uh, the kind of tactics he used in the 80s in order to kind of, like, push himself forward, he kind of, like did those but on acid spent loads of money and didn't actually get reap the benefits from them afterwards right um i think the thing is with michael jackson one thing that i learned more about him is that when things are going great he gets really obsessive about it he's really into it he's really clever he comes up with all these great ideas when things aren't going so great he's kind of a bit of an ostrich and he just puts his head in the ground right. and he tries to ignore it and I think that's kind of, he's not a kind of persevere, let's try and work it out. If something hasn't gone right, he just moves on to the next thing. Um, right. And that's where I kind of see things going wrong. And also one thing that is kind of mentioned around him is that obviously at the beginning of, you know, the early 80s, Michael Jackson was seen as kind of, you know, this Peter Pan figure, this great performers, you know, singer, dancer, great music. As we get later on to his career, he became so much more of a, a target, essentially. He became a lot more, you know, powerful, richer, more influential. And I think there was a lot more kind of noise in his just like entourage and um, different court cases against him. And that there was so much kind of publicity against him as well that I think it almost became unmanageable for him. It wasn't like he could kind of shut things off and kind of I don't know, almost almost like concentrate on what his next move should be. I feel like there was, it was so chaotic a lot of his life um, as the years went on. And I, I always think like the, the, the time bef between Off the Wall and Thriller is probably the time Michael Jackson felt the happiest and was more, could have those like creative juices flowing and felt like he was progressing and moving. And right. it's, you know, it must have been such a struggle for him to desperately want to prove himself, to maintain his positioning and, and kind of prove himself, but, you know, also be having this kind of long shadow behind him from his previous successes and people just comparing everything that he did, you know, now versus how he was, you know, at the peak of his career. And I think that becomes really difficult to manage. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and, you know, a lot of it also was his circle, too. Like, I think he got rid of a lot of the people that worked for him back in the days of, like, the height of his career. He kind of changed around managers and, like, lawyers. Mm. And um, his ally, which was Walter Yetnikoff, the head of Sony, was now gone. And then there was Tommy Mottola that came in. And, like, I think it was just uh, a difficult adjustment. Um I know that Rodney Jerkins had said that, and he's one of the ones that produced a lot of the tracks on Invincible, was that Michael Jackson had an issue with, like, trust. So a lot of things just kept going mm. around and around in circles. And um, I think that reflected a lot on his business decisions because he didn't have a circle of advisors that he could trust, you know? At that point, I think it was just pretty much yes people. Yeah, like, um, yeah, a lot of the times, like, I'll see articles or I'll see, like, news conferences uh, or, like, press conferences, and he's, like, announcing things or even or even um, stories about, like, people that he was meant to do business with, and it would be, like, um, you know, he told this person he was going to write write a book with them or that they were going to, I think, in Japan in, in the late 90s, he was meant to open theme parks, actually, there. Yeah. Um, and that never came to anything, and then... Um, yeah, like always, you know, gonna do a residency here, gonna do a, um, you know, a new album or new music. And it kind of felt like he became quite flaky and he would get really into something for a bit, but then he would kind of, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I guess he would get excited about it, but then when it actually came to like pinning anything down, he kind of 
maybe got scared that it wouldn't work out. Maybe the funding just wasn't there because he wasn't, you know, in the greatest space or his his kind of star power wasn't at its peak. Um, yeah. yeah, and the pressure just kept building and building. Like, imagine the pressure that he had. Like, I feel like Michael Jackson was always under pressure. In some ways, he thrived, but I think as he got older and, you know, he had his family and, like, other things to focus on, um, like, before Michael Jackson would say something and pretty much everyone around him would jump and be like, all right, we'll do it. But, like, hmm. one of the things also, I had just done a video about what more can I give and that charity single that he wrote. Hmm. You know, I think he worked so hard on that. You know, he had A-listers like Mariah Carey, Boys to Men. I think I think even the Backstreet Boys or Sync. one of those groups was on that track. And, mm. like, Sony was so invested in Invincible, they were just like, okay, we're just not going to release it. Like, we need to make sure Invincible's a hit. And I think when Michael wasn't getting some of the things that he envisioned, like, happening, agreement on that, he kind of lost motivation. Right, I'm going to go on to the questions now. Yeah, I would love to hear uh the question yeah so i've got two here which are particularly good i think but the first one which i have is around michael jackson and the um uh pepsi contract and what his relationship with pepsi was after his um accident mm. um obviously where his hair got caught on fire um the implications of that had were kind of detrimental towards him um so i was wondering if you had any um sort of thoughts or or uh, facts about that um I know from my video, I saw that, so originally he wanted to sue, he was quite adamant about it, and out of court, they were able to come to a settlement, which he gave to the Burns unit, um, which treated, to, well, he, he gave it to the hospital, uh, which treated him for his Burns and created a Burns unit with the money. Mm -hmm. uh, but apparently, I heard that that Burns unit was only open for two years afterwards, that it didn't really go anywhere yeah. so that that kind of feeds into our kind of um ideas around michael jackson kind of making a big gesture like that but not really following through uh i guess maybe they didn't have the funding to keep it going or something right right yeah that's sad i don't you know it's interesting because i guess like after he did that burns unit thing i mean i think michael jackson already kind of set the standard in terms of like celebrity endorsements when it came to like corporations aligning themselves with a musician and so i think he just continued on because they continue to give him like pretty big deals and support his tours mm. um so yeah that i don't really know much about that but i think michael jackson kind of maybe he just put his like thoughts about the accident to the side because it technically it was an accident it wasn't like they burned him on purpose yeah. And it wasn't Pepsi doing it. Well, I don't it. know. There's theories. I got lots of comments oh, on my videos. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, swapped out or something, you know. Um, I should actually do a video on, like, the wildest Michael Jackson's conspiracies because that's definitely one I get a lot where it's like, this is, you know, the last day you saw the real Michael Jackson. And oh. then, you know, <laughs> comes out of the hospital and he's someone else. Um, no, and I, I don't think it's really, like, Pepsi, it, you know, themselves that he had a problem with. Uh, obviously, Bob Giraldi uh, directed the two commercials, as well as Michael Jackson's Beat It video, as well as uh, the Say 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 video with Paul McCartney. Um, but after that, Michael Jackson didn't use him at all. And that was very much his style. Like, he didn't have a huge argument. He didn't necessarily sue people. He would just never use them again. Yeah. Just like... <laughs> <laughs> and Bob Giraldi, I mean, the amount of interviews with him in the, like, 83, 84, talking about these videos and stuff, you know, I think people literally... I don't know, saw him as just the Michael Jackson video guy. Um, so I think he was really kind of upset that that relationship kind of stopped. But I heard actually on the day uh, where the accident happened, there was a lot of tension on the set and it was a lot to do with Michael Jackson and the executives at Pepsi. Um, just around his involvement, what he would do in the commercial, what he wouldn't. I think they tried to push it with him, trying to get him to you know, sip a drink or have it in his hand or, oh. um, 
how much screen time he was going to have because it was very specific. He was very particular on how much he was going to be featured in this commercial. I think they had a total of five seconds or something like that, like seven seconds that he could be on, his face could be on screen. Um, and obviously he wasn't going to be drinking anything. He wasn't going to be holding anything. He wasn't going to be saying anything. Right. Um, so, so yeah, so he already had a really strict uh, relationship with them. Um, but yeah, I think he definitely uh, blamed the people around him because I know Bob Duraldi was getting frustrated with um, Michael Jackson that he wasn't, he was starting to, he was going down the steps too early, that he wanted the explosion and then Michael Jackson to go down and mm. then they did it. But then he said, can you go back? Can you go back? Because you're too like far in the camera. Like I want there to be explosion lights and then you appear. Wow. Um, so I think he really blamed Bob Giraldi about that rather than Pepsi. Yeah, I would um, too in that case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think also, um, yeah, with the later, I mean, obviously it was incredibly successful. The money was really good. It supported his tours. Um, the next one, it was kind of like a given that he was going to do. I think also they were really create like he did like four different commercials for Pepsi for the bad era. I think yes. he really liked. I think he really liked that um, the creativity they could put into it, as well as the promotion. Like the, you know, it promotes Pepsi, but also it promotes Michael Jackson, his tour, his single, his um, new image, and all that type of stuff. So I think he saw that from a commercial aspect that it, was, it benefited him as well. Um, and then I think really the last one uh, for the Dangerous tour was really just him. Because um, obviously the Dangerous Tour was uh, was created in order to finance his new charity, Heal the World Foundation. So he just thought, yep, yeah, more money into the pot for that. I need to, I think he wanted to earn $100 million by the end of 1993 for that foundation. So that definitely, wow. yeah, definitely added a lot uh, into it. Um, but yeah. Okay. And then the next question I have is uh, from Moon Speaks TV. Um, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on the state of the estate and business uh, after his death. I feel his estate doesn't do a good job on keeping his legacy going, for example, releasing uh, DVDs, releasing unreleased songs or memorabilia. When I walk into stores, I see Elvis and Marilyn Monroe everywhere. I don't see Michael Jackson everywhere. And he should be. Uh, there are also major tours and great performances not available to the public for purchase. I would love to hear your thoughts. Okay. Well, I'd love to, to take a stab at this <laughs> because I'm one of the, f I feel like I'm one in a few um, that believe that the estate is doing mm. an okay job. I don't, I don't really. Okay. So here's my thing. I think that Michael Jackson right now has such a growing fan base because of a lot of the, the things that are happening that the estate has been doing to promote his legacy to new fans. So Michael Jackson has nine-year-olds and 10-year-olds that come and comment on my videos because of part in because of things like the Michael Jackson one permanent show in Las Vegas, the Michael Jackson immortal show that toured Cirque du Soleil, mm. the Michael Jackson video game experience, um, Thriller 3D, uh, Bad 25, the release of Bad 25 documentary, off-the-wall documentary and I know that we don't see Michael Jackson memorabilia mm. in stores but to me that's not indicative of um, like his popularity part of Michael Jackson even during his lifetime was not to be oversaturating and not to not to oversaturate and I mm. think that people forget yes the michaeljackson.com store might not be that that great but i show a lot of michael jackson t-shirts and a lot of that is licensing they license yeah <laughs> but also what i think is like you know in in the respect that i feel like both of what we're doing is that as fans we're creating content that we want to see that the estate might not necessarily be doing so even you just talk about memorabilia merchandise you know you know the detail has its own store we sell like you know our own original designs yes. and stuff and i feel like that you know i i don't know whether it's the estate's prerogative to offer everything to their fans that they're looking for or trying to nurture community that is, you know, that is kind of self-serving in itself. Um, 
And also, I think what they're thinking about, you know, obviously the hardcore fans want to see all the unreleased uh, singles and all the kind of, you know, the backlog of whatever performances or have everything in, in great quality and stuff. But I think also what they're thinking is from a very, like, mass market, mass appeal, what of the casual Michael Jackson uh, fans going to like rather than, like, the hardcore ones who are probably, you know, have subscribed to my channel and your channel as well like they think about the casual ones that yeah. kind of know the hits and and would love to go see a show or watch a documentary or buy a greatest hits album right. <laughs> so yeah because i mean if you ask me it's like the more casual fans that continue to like like the more of a fan base you grow the more sales you can get whereas like i mean i'm only gonna buy thriller one or two times mm-hmm. Um, where, but if you get a whole bunch of new people to be interested in Thriller, well, yeah, they're going to get more sales and they're going to get more exposure for Michael Jackson as an artist. And I, I don't know. I, I personally think that the fan base is doing a good job of, you know, like you said, creating our own content that helps to serve and facilitate the community of hardcore fans. And the estate is going to continue doing their whole thing with the mass market, the Broadway show, for example. Mm. Um, which you don't, I don't see that from Prince or Whitney Houston. I know a lot of people love Whitney Houston's estate. Um, Mm. any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, so yeah, but there's some controversies in there as well. I mean, I follow Whitney Houston on Instagram and I think like it's very tastefully done. I love the release of her first, uh, her debut album. I think that looks really cool and really great for the fans. Obviously, she had a bit... Well, I mean, Michael Jackson and Whitney have both had their kind of hologram controversies, haven't they? Oh, yeah. Which, I actually went to the Whitney Houston hologram tour. Okay. So, it came to London in March, and it was actually the last thing that I did... I mean, it's the last It's the last thing I have done since lockdown. Um, so, so I don't think I've been going to a theatre anytime soon, but it was actually the last day on the tour because the rest of the European tour was cancelled after that. Oh, wow. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. So, so that as, as an example, the re- I mean, a lot of people are going to say, like, oh, why would you even go to that? But I just thought it was uh, obviously a really unique, like, one-of-a-kind... Obviously, in the future, maybe there'll be so many more and they'll be super popular, but I thought it was just a really different thing to go to. And obviously, I'm, like, a fan of Whitney as well. Right. Um, but I have to say, it was a little bit underwhelming. Like, it was not that great. It was kind oh. of just... I think it would have been, I don't know, it was a bit stale, like, um, was it, as, you... as a performance. Uh, okay, because I saw clips on YouTube, and, like, I have mm. watched, like, 20 minutes of the show, like, in different clips, and I was like, okay, this is cool, but is the energy in the room, like, were people singing along? Yeah, like, I, I maybe it's a crowd, because it's a smaller, like, it was in a kind of theatre, uh, you know, 2,000 seats type uh, place, and I kind of just got the vibe that it was kind of casual viewers, like, lots of people going in and out, and there wasn't that kind of, like, oh my god, this person's here, and, like, people really into it um and i think that really makes such a huge difference i wish like the hologram could be contained within like a part of the stage or something not just on the screen because she wouldn't really like walk back or forth she would kind of just go side to side but things that i thought was funny is that like she even had like a rag like and she was patting herself down and stuff like when she was singing some of the ballads (laughs) and stuff and i was like wow that's that's really authentic there you know (laughs) really trying to get the whitney experience there um (laughs) I want to see that. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm just curious. No, I'm. I'm definitely. I mean, she, she looks good. I mean, I was quite far away. I couldn't really see, like, you know, in the face whether it really looked like her. I've seen images, and it, it like, it's a little bit, you know. But to be honest, I feel like a good tr- tribute act is just as good. Like, I don't think you need a hologram yeah. necessarily. Um, so the good old fashioned tribute acts, I, I would recommend probably better if you want to kind of relive. Um, those artists that aren't with us anymore right and like one more thing i want to add that i like i know a lot of people think that i'm so pro estate but one thing that i will say that i think needs work is the involvement of the fan community like i would love for Mm. there to be a little bit more of a relationship between fan organizations and the estate because i think that would be cool you know like 
that would be really interesting to have like for example an official Michael Jackson I don't know YouTube channel where they come on and have like panel discussions or things where they mm. they feature some of the artists that worked with Michael but also some of the, like the fans like that would be cool to see the detail on a panel mm. talking about you know yes it would be right and <laughs> <laughs> Jake yeah. too you know so. yeah of course <laughs> no I think um yeah and I think that involvement you know that's how you keep things fresh like you and you put like a new perspective on it like you know obviously there's only so many times they can re-release you know an album of his but I think really it's that and a lot of, a lot of the videos which I have you know it's kind of more um yeah the participation with the fan community makes it interesting make, keeps it fresh you know putting a new stance on stuff you know obviously i've um done topics which are very topical of the moment whether it's tiger king that you know that's how you kind of keep things relevant for people um uh, and yeah the fan and and I, also i feel like especially with social media social media is not a you know a broadcasting type uh platform it you're meant to be it's a two and to and fro kind of one-on-one -on -one, uh, communication yes. and they should be more engaging with that right should we do uh desert island disc now yes okay first one blood on the dance floor or she drives me wild for me it's definitely going to have to be ah oh, blood on the dance floor oh okay <laughs> right Got to be there or dangerous? Mine's definitely dangerous. Um, I've actually, I'm actually been listening to it's like a dangerous album mega mix that Single White Club's done, and he mixes it with jam as well, mm -hmm. and that just is so good. Obviously, like probably my two favorite songs on the Dangerous album. Oh, nice! I gotta check that out. Right, next one for you is uh, "Don't Stop Till You Get Enough" or "Bad." Oh, I'm gonna have to go with Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. Just so classic Michael Jackson. Um, okay, same ones for you. Don't Stop Till You Get Enough or Bad? Oh, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. Right, for you, it is Scream or ABC? Um, I'm gonna go with ABC because I need something lighthearted every now and then and ABC is it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, for you, it's I'll Be There Ooh. or In The Closet. Um, I'm gonna say I'll be there. Okay, I like that. Right, next for you is why, why, <laughs> <laughs> not that song. <laughs> um, or the girl is mine. Um, I'm gonna have to go with why. That's the one with three T, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Am I right? Yes. Okay, I'm gonna go with that. It's just so fun to sing along to. <laughs> And you also have the same ones. Why or The Girl Is Mine? Oh, that's difficult. I mean, I do like Why, but I do have a bit of a a, um, a love for the, is it the, I don't know what you call it, the the rap in, or the just spoken oh, yeah. word in The Girl <laughs> Is Mine. <laughs> the monologue or the little altercation. Um <laughs> I'm probably going to say why as well, though. I mean, that's probably the cooler option, really. Yes, I agree with you. Right, next one for you is Chicago or Stranger in Moscow. Okay, so... Depending on the mood, but I'm going to have to go with... Overall, I think I enjoy Chicago a little bit more, so oh. I'm going to have to go with Chicago. I actually watched... Yeah, I actually watched Michael Jackson do um, Stranger in Moscow on the History Tour yesterday. Oh. It's so good. It was such a, like, I don't know. I just feel like it's a good... I feel like either side are, like, really big dance numbers, but, like, having it as almost, like, a palate cleanser or a bit of a vibe. Like, yeah. It's really cool. Like, um, obviously, all his, like, crazy dancing and stuff. Right, definitely. I like yeah. that. It's, like, the slow robot. It's like yeah. a robotics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you're in space or something. Yeah. Okay, so next up for you is who is it? Or Stranger in Moscow? Um I'm gonna say Stranger in Moscow. Okay. Right, your next one is Man in the Mirror or Keep the Faith. Um, I am gonna go with <sighs> 
Man in the Mirror. That was a hard one, but yeah, Man in the Mirror. Yeah. <laughs> Good choice. Uh, next up is Someone Put Your Hand Out or One Day in Your Life. Oh, I really like the <laughs> like both of them. <laughs> um, I'm probably going to put Someone Put Your Hand Out. Okay. But yeah. I like that one. All right, next for you is Will You Be There? Or you are not alone. Um, I'm gonna have to go with. Will you be there? Definitely. Yeah. Um. So the next one for you is: Will you be there or Dirty Diana? Oh. Um. Will you be there? Okay. Right. Next for you is enjoy yourself or you rock my world. Oh, definitely you rock my world. Just because of nostalgia yeah. purposes, like. Brings back so many good memories. Yeah. No. I love that song. Um, so next up for you. Do the Bartman or You Rock My World? Um, I love both, but I'm going to say You Rock My World. Okay. I think I'll probably get crucified if I said Do the Bartman. <laughs> <laughs> we Are the World or Don't Care About Us? Sorry, They Don't Care About Us. Um, I'm going to go with They Don't Care About Us. I like that one. Oh yeah. Okay, we are the world, or given to me. Um, I'm probably gonna say we are the world. Okay. I'd probably sing along to that more. Also, there's a really good version. Um, there's a famous like it's like a puppet parody show that was in the '80s here in the UK called Spitting Image, and they did a really good parody of it. Um. Which is just really funny. <laughs> just see. Because they, they have puppets that they create okay. that are meant to imitate like David Bowie and Bob Dylan and um, Tina Turner and oh my Cindy Lauper and Madonna. <laughs> Madonna wasn't in it, but was she? Um, no. no, I don't think so. But anyway, she's in it uh, <laughs> on this, on this uh, skit show. And yeah, they have a really good parody. So I always end up singing that one rather than... The actual one. <laughs> nice. I've got to check but, that out too. <laughs> yeah. Right. Next one for you is Jam or uh, Blame It on the Boogie. Definitely Jam. Wow. Yes. Yeah. And, okay. So I've got Jam for you or Blame It on the Boogie. Definitely Jam. It's going to take a while for Jam not to be on my list. Okay, and that's us done. Thanks for the questions, everyone. Um, but yeah, that's it from us. Uh, we'll see you next time. See you guys next time. Bye.